so that we can operate um, how we're supposed to be tonight, all right? Uh, by way of, of recap, so this is the third part tonight. We've been discussing this whole concept of bearing fruit. That's been what we've been talking about, right? Becoming a fruitful disciple. So with that being said, um, so the first time we talked about the power of evangelism and how we understand it's our role and our responsibility to grow the church. And so when he gives us the great commission, the great command of the church is, you know, go and baptize and teach. And so I hope that you got that um, from the first lesson that we got. Also, I hope that you gathered on last week, we talked about the cost of discipleship. Someone say it costs, it costs. Luke 9 and 23, it talks about deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow him. So that's an important thing for us to make sure that we get, and so that's important for us to gather. Tonight, we're going to take the conversation further. Let me go and preempt you. I got a lot of information tonight. So I'm not expecting you to write everything. A lot of it, what I'm hoping you get tonight is through osmosis. Just enjoy the experience of Bible study tonight. <laughs> we're going to try that. We had some snafu at, at noon, and we see we got a couple of snafus at, at our seven, but we're going to press our way through it, all right? Tonight, we're going to talk about hanging with the teacher. Someone raised it last week in our Bible study, and I thought it was intriguing because one of the things that we must understand, if we're to be a disciple of Jesus, we got to know Jesus, all right, so that is an important thing for us to understand, important thing for us to gather. So we're going to push that thought tonight. Okay, I got a lot of information. Sometimes it's a lot of extraneous information. I enjoyed studying for this, so y'all going to really get some deep stuff tonight. So I hope that you will enjoy it and just uh, embrace it. Touch your neighbor and say, you ain't got to write everything down. You ain't got to write everything down. You don't got to write everything down. I'm serious. Because I, I, it's going to be a lot. All right. So let's get into it tonight. Hang it with the teacher. So let's, let's dive into it tonight. Number one, the primary purpose in selecting the original 12 to be his disciples was companionship. That sounds odd. I understand for some that sounds interesting. Why does he want companionship? But I believe that was a primary purpose for him. Mark chapter 3 verse 14 is a text that begins to talk about it. It says this. It says, he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles to be with him, to send them out to preach. Notice that little phrase, because understand when he talks about being the disciple, it's not just to send them, but the initial reality that Mark highlights is Mark says Jesus wanted them to be with him. That one phrase simply means he wanted them to hang with him. Interesting about that because the invitation, I think, is so crucial. And I'll get into this later. It was an invitation of relationship. And what makes that so interesting is because what Jesus was going to teach them was not something they could pick up from just the scripts and the scrolls, but it was going to be about an intimate observation and intimate understanding of who Jesus is. Because Jesus' interpretation of the law, which influenced, shaped, and constructed his outlook on life, made it an imperative that his disciples be with him. That word disciples, what we talked about in, in the Greek, mathetes, M-A-T-H-E-T-E-S, says we are people who watch this, ought to spend our lives apprentice to our master. In other words, we should spend our lives trying to make sure we are following Jesus. I need you to write this because out of all of we, if we were to categorize that relationship between disciple and Jesus, that means we are in a growing, learning relationship always. 
You're going to hear this, this theme throughout this Bible study and throughout this lessons that we're going to be teaching on this is at the end of the day, you should never stop learning because we have not and will not figure Jesus all the way out. I said this earlier, unfortunately, you will not get a degree from Discipleship University. Every year, every day, there's more classes we got to take. And that's just part of the process of discipleship. What does that mean? And when he says this, Rick Warren, I like how he puts it in context. Rick Warren said this, a disciple is a learner, not in an academic setting of a schoolroom, no, but rather at the work site of a craftsman. That what he basically says is that our role as a disciple of Jesus is not that Jesus is some teacher standing in front of a chalkboard and we're students at a desk. That's not what this relationship is. What this relationship is, is like Jesus is this master craftsman that we have to get in the workroom, get in the, the building room with him. We got to hold the nails. We got to see how he hits the nails. We got to see how he builds. In essence, this is not a relationship where we sit back, Jesus regurgitates information, we pass tests, and then we move on. No, this is a hands-on experience. That the best way to be a disciple is to work. In other words, this is what I want you to know. It's not about acquiring information about God, but it's about learning and developing your skills of faith. See, here's the issue. I hope you don't take this the wrong way, but it's the truth. God does not care how much Bible you know. You don't impress God because you can quote Scripture. You know what impresses God? When you live it. Like he's not enamored just because, ooh, I can quote, and I can know, know all 66 books of the Bible, and that's fine, but if you're still not following it, what's the point? So you can pass and ace all the tests when it comes to talk about what you think Scripture means, but if you're not living it, Jesus says, I didn't come so that you can just know it and recite it. I came so that you can live it. When we think about that, I think it's also important to understand that when we begin to look at this style of rabbi, we style of discipleship, it puts Jesus in the role of rabbi. Someone say rabbi. Now, here's what's interesting about rabbi, R-A-B-B-I, is that it's a major theme and title for Jesus in the Gospels. But I make the argument that we use rabbi the least, especially from our Christian perspective. We call him Lord, yes. Call him Savior, yes. But very often, we do not call him rabbi. And even though I addressed it last week that only outsiders called him rabbi, we should still call him rabbi. Why? Because in essence, a rabbi had a significant role in that day and still has a significant role. Matter of fact, if you look at it, I want to remind you that there were three factors that, that would considered in his day about a rabbi. Rabbi, number one, was known for their knowledge. Knowledge on a particular subject, knowledge on a particular thing. That's why John chapter 3 verse 2 is when Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. This is what he said. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. So one way we see Jesus operating as a rabbi, especially in Scripture, is that he was known to be very knowledgeable. He was known by outsiders to be knowledgeable. But there's another way we see in the Gospels. Rabbis of the day, if you were considered a rabbi, parents would bring their children on their first birthday to the rabbi for the rabbi to bless them. It's almost what we call our child dedication now. That was a, a thing. You would take your child on their first birthday. You would take them to the rabbi and let the rabbi lay his hands on them. We see Jesus doing that in the Gospels. Luke chapter 18, verse 15, people were bringing infants to him so he might touch them. 
So he was a rabbi because of his position of knowledge. He was a rabbi because of his position with the children. But also we see him as a rabbi because he was also responsible for the behavior of his followers. Matthew 15, 2. Some people try to corral Jesus because, you know, he's always getting in trouble with the religious um, right. He says, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders for they don't wash their hands when they eat? In essence, what we're seeing is this is an interesting thing because at the end of the day, we see Jesus operating in this position of rabbi. This is going to be crucial for us tonight because the only way you can be a great student is you have to understand who your teacher is. Like I learned this. I learned this. I learned this in school and it, it, it helped me. When I was a student, I learned how to be successful in school. You know how you learn to be successful in school? I learned that it's my job as a student to figure out what my teacher wants. That blew my mind. Because for a little while, you know, students, we little self-absorbed. We think the teacher got to change to you. Oh, no. We learn early. The chief aim that I learned how to get my best out of this is let me figure out what my teacher wants. Let me give them, see, I get good grades because I didn't regurgitate the information I wanted. I gave the teacher what they wanted. And this is important, especially as we understand this role as disciple and Jesus as our rabbi. This is important because, number two, rabbis were unique because rabbis normally would have students choose them. They would find someone popular. It's, it's almost like you finding a mentor and you want them to be your, your mentor. You would find them out. You would go look at them and you would, you would once again send a request. Will you be my mentor? Things like that. But Jesus turned it around because he did something so unique and radical that most rabbis at this day didn't even do. Instead of the disciples choosing him, number two, Jesus chose the persons who would be his disciples. Now, why is that important? Why is that unique? Why is that significant? Why was that crucial? Well, there's a lot of different things, and I want you to hear this, because I think it begins to make sense. Because in that day, when disciples would try to go after the rabbi, a rabbi had a choice not to choose you. Because really, you would look at the rabbi, and you would determine the significance of the rabbi. You would determine if they had good sense or not based on what kind of disciples they had with them. Someone like a teacher, if you had to choose your students... What students would you choose? Someone that listens, bright, well-behaved, amen? <laughs> what if they told y'all students, hey, teachers, hey, you get to choose your students this year. Oh, yeah, whoo. <laughs> you would. You, you had your list of who you think would work for you, right? Some of y'all are like, yeah, Pastor, I wish they would have let me choose my students. <laughs> But that's what's intriguing because of this day, normal rabbis wanted men, and there were only men, the disciples of that day, of promise and only accepted applicants who were the best and the brightest. But here's what makes Jesus so interesting. We look at the 12 who walked with him when every other rabbi would choose the best and the brightest. Guess what Jesus did? Jesus chose people who most self-respecting rabbis wouldn't even look at. They would see their application, put an F on it, move it on. I ain't got time to waste on it. Jesus chose people who were not prime candidates. Zealots, fishermen. He had a quandary of people that, in essence, would not even make the roster in most of these rabbis. 
I mean, think about it. I mean, normally rabbis would have people who were smart, and, and they could imagine, they could go ahead and they could intellectually ascertain and remember, have the cognitive remembrance of, of getting all the information done. I mean, they, they, could, they could grasp complex concepts as those rabbis would have to talk about the 613 laws that they would have to go through. I mean, these rabbis didn't have time to slow down and tell you, did you get it? Did you understand it? That's not what the rabbi did. Rabbi, your job was to keep up. But look who Jesus chose. Jesus chose disciples. He chose people who wouldn't even, couldn't even grasp simple parables. How many times did we see in the gospel once Jesus said something, he, they used to pull him aside. Hey, man, what, what did you mean? Um, you said the kingdom is like a pearl. Most of them couldn't even grasp. They were just asking them different things. And most rabbis wouldn't even have that. But not only that, what else made it worse? is that most rabbis, at the end of the day, what they would do is they would make sure you were students of the law. They were strict adherents to the law. You're going to listen to the law. What I'm telling you is the law. This is how it is. But Jesus did not choose people based upon just the law. Because when Jesus had disciples, the principal thing, I want you to write this down, is that he wanted to teach them that human values and needs took precedence even over the law and the Sabbath. That what he was teaching them was so radical and so out the box because most people say it's either cut or dry. Either this is what it says or not. It was black or white. But Jesus didn't operate that way. And, I, and I'll push this a little bit further because I think under further observation and study of the ministry of Jesus, you honestly, most of us, would kick Jesus out of our churches. Because Jesus was a, did not have an affinity or adherence to the law. And he taught his disciples to be radical like that as well. Matter of fact, I make this argument that most often times, this is what happens. This is what normal rabbis will do. That once you've got all you got from me, I'll say you good, you graduated, and you go off and guess what? You start your own little group too. Because you would graduate from a rabbi. You would then go and find other people who would follow you. That was the progression of being a rabbi. What did Jesus do? Jesus did not have people to split up and do, start their own sex from him. But what did Jesus demand of his disciples? Unlike any other rabbi who said, listen, y'all get the information, but that's it. I'm not going to get close to y'all. Jesus demanded that they follow him, denying themselves and taking up the cross. That was radical because no rabbi demanded such things of their disciples. Why is that important for us? Because at the end of the day, even now, no disciple Jesus ever had did he allow to graduate or track their own. Instead, they taught others to do what? Be disciples of Jesus. This is crucial. This is a major understanding. That's why even now when we talk about it, my role is not to make disciples of PG, and your role is not to make disciples of you. Our role, period, point blank, is to make disciples of Jesus. You know how radical that is? That's something that's so powerful that I want us to really comprehend and perhaps when y'all do the discussion period to really consider what that looks like. Because in essence, this was a major thing of Jesus' ministry. Number three, observing the life of Jesus is key for discipleship. Observation is the main way Jesus was teaching his disciples. Now here's what's interesting. Have you ever wondered, and I know during my study this was pretty profound to me, you ever wondered why Jesus struggled doing anything in his hometown? 
You know, there's a portion of scripture that talks about he went home, but it, and then he made the statement, prophets are without honor in their own home. He couldn't produce no miracles in his home. When he went there, they said, is that Joseph's son? They kept saying that. Now, now I, I read something this week that really perked my interest, and I would love to examine it further because I do think it's worth um, more understanding. But one scholar says that the reason he believes that Jesus, perhaps the people of his home were so astonished about where he was now is because when they saw him growing up, he was not the most pious of people. Pious simply means an adherence or very religious, which I think he makes the argument when you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus didn't do stuff that normal um, people who are pious or religious would do. He really was doing stuff on the Sabbath when they didn't believe in doing that on the Sabbath and stuff that they would do. So it's, it's almost like this. Can you imagine people who hadn't seen Jesus for a while come back and now he says he's the son of God and they were probably like, yeah, right, Joseph's son. It's almost like you're growing up with somebody and you know them. I mean, you know them. And then some years down the line, they come back and they're a preacher, a preacher, a bishop, or a pastor. Now you're like, when you start preaching, right? That's what happens. So can you imagine that's what happened with Jesus? These were folk that lived with him, grew up around him, and they say, hold on, hold on. You the what? Man, you Joseph's son. I remember you back then. Ain't no way you done changed. Now you in church all the time? No, no, not you. That, that's what it was like for Jesus. And that puts it in another context, which is kind of interesting. So when Jesus shows up, after all this, as all he does, Jesus came with this whole swag that was so different than the, all the other rabbis and all the other teachers. As a matter of fact, Matthew 7, 28, 29 said that this way. It says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were astonished. They were amazed at his teaching. Because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not the scribes. Like what Jesus was saying, he was not just quoting scripture. He was speaking as a person that knew what he was saying. Not secondhand. It was somebody who, was, who had so immersed it in his heart. In other words, what Jesus began to show the disciples that following Jesus was not some vague, abstract, some lofty philosophical concept. It was not something that he went to do like that. But yet, what he showed them in the Gospels is that the disciples were repeatedly taught a lesson of giving character building experiences just by observing Jesus' life. That you couldn't pinpoint it within a certain time period. But they were always around. Whenever Jesus was doing something, they'd be right there around. So they saw him turn two, um, uh, two fish and five loaves to feed the multitudes. They saw him extend this man who had a withered hand. They saw stuff and situations like that. And so most of the things that they learned was not taught, it was caught. They were so immersed in him that they began to emulate and began to be more like him. Matter of fact, that's why when you look at Mark chapter 1 verse 18, which is one of the call stories of Andrew and Peter, notice what it says in Mark 1 verse 18. It says, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now what's interesting, that Greek word followed here, akalithio, means this, to walk the same road. Matter of fact, the best picture I can give Dick and Reed is that it simply means to cleave to someone. It goes back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, remember, when man, woman, 
to cleave to you. It's, it's, it's a clenching. It's, it's to walk with, to, to experience life with, to, to, to be on a journey with. That's what discipleship is. If I was to give you one succinct definition tonight for what discipleship is, it's simply us going on a journey with Jesus. Us experiencing life with Jesus. And that's powerful. Can you imagine? Because these disciples, man, they got to walk with him. They saw things that really began to shape fundamentally their view, shape their faith. And we're going to talk about it because in the walking with Jesus, they got exposed to stuff that was not necessarily part of their everyday life. Because here's the thing. Here's the danger. When you walk with Jesus, you won't see life the same. Hear my heart. When you walk with Jesus... I mean walk. I'm not talking about as a casual observer every now and again. I'm talking about when you make the full out pledge and commitment that you're going to rock with Jesus. And this is it. This is my man. A thousand grand. I'm with my guy. When you're with Jesus, you see life differently. You operate differently. Your, your perspective gets different. Why? Because Jesus does things unlike anybody else. Matter of fact, I tell you this, and this is deep. Number four, the ministry of Jesus was about breaking down barriers. One of the key things they learned is that Jesus was all about breaking down barriers. One of the great stories of Scripture that highlights and illustrates that is a story of Jesus at the well with the Samaritan woman. You know that story. But I want to share some insight tonight. And I hope that as we continue our journey, I hope, you know, with me, that, that you, you read the Bible in, in unique ways. Because what you read it, you know, you can read it, but you got to really read it. There's some great stuff. And that's knowing the context of it. So let me read a portion of John chapter 4 to you. This is the narrative of Jesus as he's at Jacob's well with the Samaritan woman. This is the word of God. John 4, beginning around verse 21. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on the mountain nor in Jerusalem. But you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is where? Where the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who's called the Christ. And when he comes, he would explain everything to us. Verse 26, Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. This always been an intriguing conversation. Let's set the context. Jesus meets this woman at the well. It's the high point of the day. It's noon. And most people don't understand this in Scripture, perhaps, is one of the most scandalous conversations you'll ever read in the Bible. Because you have a male Jew and a female Samaritan. So let's talk about already, off top, just by them being there, what we see. First of all, Jews and Samaritans do not intermingle. Them ain't your peoples. You do not rock. Ain't no respectable Jew ever going to rock with a Samaritan, and Samaritans ain't rocking with the Jews. Worse than the Bloods and the Crips. So that's number one. Number two, the Samaritan woman was ritually unclean. Why? Because she was living in adultery. You remember Jesus read her, read her all up. Listen, you with five and the one you with now ain't your husband. Boom. So he's clean. She's unclean. So here you have Jews, Samaritans, unclean, clean. And then the final thing is he's a man. And in that day, men did not speak to women in public that were not their wives. That was a no-no. That's not what you do. 
And so we think about it, man. Think about how this whole thing went down. Jesus sent his disciples on. He sees at the well. She comes up there. And what does Jesus do? Jesus did something. He initiated a conversation. What did he say? Give me something to drink. Now, I know y'all thinking that. That's pretty, that's pretty just a blind, because I know y'all spiritual, so you thinking that that just means he was thirsty, right? That's what you think. Jesus was thirsty, that's why he asked. How many thought because he was thirsty, that's why he asked? Raise your hand. It's not a trick question, it's serious. If he asked for something to drink because Jesus was thirsty, perhaps he could have been, it was hot. I don't put that by him, but there's another way to look at this. Because in that day, Dr. Brown the custom says that if someone was to ask for a drink of water and you were to accept, it was a creation of a social contract that says from this point forward, we are at least going to be friends for a year. That in essence, it's going to blow your mind. It's crazy. But him asking for water was an invitation of friendship to someone he shouldn't be connected to. It, it was, it was, it was, it's almost the lamest pickup line I've ever heard in my life. Hey girl, you want some water? <laughs> yes. That means they were friends. It was a social contract. It's funny, but in essence, that's how scandalous that was. For him to ask of water from a Samaritan, unclean woman in public was not something you should do, period. And he did it, some would say thirsty, but he did it as a way to break the ice, to offer friendship to someone he shouldn't even be connected to. To think about that blows my mind to really consider that. And Jesus didn't, I mean, that wasn't just the only instance. So I can imagine the tension of the disciples who were good Jews, they saw Jesus do some stuff that really a lot of times didn't make a lot of sense. I mean, he was touching people with leprosy. Now, you ain't touch people with leprosy. That ain't what we do. That's not how we rock and roll. Matter of fact, you remember a story where he talks about he goes to the woman, the man by the name of Simon the leper's house. And most people don't realize that this is one of the major issues that the religious right had with Jesus. Because if you study the contradictions and really the tension between Jesus and the Pharisees and Sadducees, if you were to really put it in the Pharisees-Sadducees light, they really had some serious complaints to their view. Jesus was just out there. He was too radical. There were certain things good Jews, good leaders would not do. You wouldn't go everywhere. It's almost like if you heard I was in a strip club, y'all be like, hold on, that pastor can't be in a strip club. Because there's certain things by rate of my title you would assume I would never do. Come walk with me. So for them, him going to a well to talk to a woman, him touching a leper guy, and then showing up at Simon the leper's house. Now let's go a deeper to that because I want you to understand context. That's why when you read the Bible, it's so much behind context. That's what you got to know the customs and the manners of those days. So in those days, what they had a problem with is the issue with Simon the leper was not just he was a leper or former leper, but he was not what they would call a strict Jew. In that day, you, there was tears. So strict Jews hung with strict Jews. You didn't hang with regular people because they were beneath you. But when you notice, a lot of Jesus' company was not with people who most of us would assume he would hang with. Simon the leper's house, 
The Bible explicitly said he was at tax collectors and sinners. Matter of fact, they threw a party for him that was already furnished and was backed by Zacchaeus. I'm not making this up, am I? So Simon the leper understand why this is significant. So he goes to his house, someone who's not strict in adherence to the rules. And to make it worse, he didn't just stop by. He didn't just sit. The Bible says he reclined in Simon's house. That's why when you see some of the pictures of antiquity, they really off, especially the picture of Da Vinci, The Last Supper. There were no chairs back then. Normally, it'd be a table that may be a few inches off the floor, and you reclined on your stomach. You would sit and eat on your elbows. So he didn't just sit there. He, reclined. he got comfortable. He got comfortable in a place where the religious people you shouldn't be at. And while he was there, what happens? A woman comes in, alabaster box. Y'all know the story. Pours it on his feet. If I had time to push it a little further, I think that's also powerful because a couple of things. Alabaster box, how much money that was worth. Number two, she poured her tears on his feet. Y'all do realize in antiquity, women would collect tears in what is called a tear jar. And they would only give it to someone later on the line who they felt deserved their tears. You would mainly hold those tears, some would suggest, until you got married or something. They would, I mean, for celebrations, if a tear came, they would collect it in a jar, if there was sorrow. And so to give your tears to someone was literally to give yourself to them. So imagine this woman who's been collecting tears her whole life, and she gets in the presence of Jesus, and she finds someone she's been holding her tears in for. She pours it on his feet. Matter of fact, the Bible then says he wash, she washes his, wipes his feet with her hair. Hair in antiquity represent your glory. Oh, there's so much in there. I wish I had a church. I would holler right up in there, right? But she wiped it. She gave him her all. But that wasn't even the most scandalous thing. She was at his feet. Being at the feet of a rabbi is the symbol or sign of a disciple. She's a woman. They didn't have women disciples of that day. But she took that position. A lot of that, why you notice, that's why when you read the ministry of Jesus, it is scandalous. Read Luke chapter 10. Even though we highlight the 12, I, I am of the belief that Jesus had others. Luke chapter 10 said he had benefactors, women who were very instrumental to the ministry of Jesus. Matter of fact, the first one who saw him when he got risen from the grave was Mary. Which I think part of that position, I think there was a lot of prejudice and sexism against her reliability as a witness. That's why throughout the years, she has been probably uh, devalued because that's why they always try to say Mary of Magdalene, which was a place uh, where there was a lot of prostitution, as a way to try to, to denigrate her. Even though I think Jesus probably gave her more prominence than scripture gives us the allowance to. No. But think about how crazy that was for that to take place. In other words, here's the reality. The importance of hanging with Jesus is to allow the transference of his character and behavior to be upon his disciples. Matter of fact, let me give it better than this. Grandma would say it this way. Show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Because here's the truth. I know you may not want to admit it tonight, but who you're around influences you. And let's be real. Who you're around, you act like. Y'all ain't going to say amen. Y'all going to. Who you around, who you allow in your space begins to determine your actions, your thoughts, your decisions. Come on, some of us wouldn't have done what we did if it weren't for people 
that we were trying to impress in our crew. Come on, let's be real. You wouldn't, peer pressure is something. Somebody knows what I'm talking about. Peer pressure that made you do some good things and it made you do some bad things too. Said it again. He said, real bad. Look at it. <laughs> he started grinning like, yeah, real bad. I don't even want to know. I'm going to let you have that. And so this invitation is always unique because what Jesus is trying to do is he wants, his, he wants, to, he wants to infuse himself on his disciples. Don't just hear me, feel me. Because at the end of the day, what Jesus understood is that when you leave me and I'm going to go, I need you to be so immersed in me that you think like me. I want you to get so lost in me that I become you. That they don't see me, they see thee. That's why Matthew 11 verse 28 through 30 is a powerful verse. Come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. You've heard that, right? Take up my yoke, learn from me. Because I'm lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You've heard that. You've heard that, right? So, so what do you think the yoke is? Now, there's one definition of yoke. On one hand, we have the yoke, which is the thing that's placed upon animals, right? Y'all have heard that one. Now, that's important. And, and the yoke would be, be where two animals be paired up to kind of give them... Um, synergy when they're trying to plow. Now, normally two yoked animals wouldn't necessarily have the same strength. So a lot of times you would put a stronger animal with a weaker animal. But you got to be careful because you don't want the animal too weak because it will pull the strong one down. That's what we get out of the scripture where it says don't be unequally yoked, which I think a lot of times we misinterpret because we oftentimes assume that he's talking about saved and unsaved when I don't believe that's what the interpretation is. I do believe a better interpretation because you can be saved and saved and still be unequally yoked. Because not everyone is going to be at the same level. Which means you can't be saved and still drag people back. I wish I had time. Um, but, but there's another thing to that, which is also in that day, if someone was to conquer you, conquering king, they would have what was a yoke, which was be a rod. And in order that you would show allegiance to this conqueror, to this person who has authority over you, is you would have to literally pass under the rod. It's what they would do in agriculture. They would make animals pass under the rod. It, it, you would pass under the yoke, which is your sign of loyalty to the one who's conquered you. So we will take that interpretation, what Jesus is saying, that because of who I am to you, you got to pledge your undying loyalty to me. So a yoke is not just for progression, it's also for prominence or position, that I am submitting or sacrificing myself to be under the will of Jesus. Matter of fact, here's the truth, right? This, the purpose of being yoked with Jesus is to build relationship. The purpose of being yoked to Jesus is to build relationship. Because only through relationship with Jesus can his disciples be taught what Jesus would have them to learn. That's why Jesus is not interested in you, him just being this abstract entity that spouses good, good ideals and good rules and rituals. That's not it. That's why it's not just enough to just be a good person. Because even good persons, that, that's not what Jesus... Jesus' thing is not just so you be a good person. 
No. His ideal is so you be so immersed that you once again follow so deeply in him that you move beyond just being good to move to be godly. See, godliness transcends rules. Whew, I wish I had time. And so, because we're so predicated in trying to make sure I check off everything right, he says, I'm not trying to see you be right because you're not always going to be right. But I want to see if you'll be righteous. I'm not asking you to be perfect, but I am asking you to be faithful. See, that's the difference from being good and godly. Good people want to be perfect. Godly people want to be faithful. Good people want to be right. Godly people want to be righteous. And that begins to be manifested in a particular way. In other words, this is simply what Jesus did for the disciples and what he's calling for us today. His relationship is built by hanging around and spending committed time with the person or persons with whom you desire to have relationship. Emulation in some form or fashion is a certainty of a relationship. Growing up, man, I, I admired. There's no greater individual in this world to me than my grandfather. Growing up, I wanted to be him. It's so funny. I told the staff on Sunday, some of the guys who rode with us, I have, I have a little shrine to my grandfather in my office. This is a funeral program, some pictures uh, of us together. And right beneath it, there are two cups that have my initials and his initials on it. But it has one birth date, my granddad's birth date. Uh, and it's interesting how the story I got that. Because I always wanted to be like him. I would wear my granddad's shoes around the house, put on his shirt. Whatever he did, I wanted to do. I wanted to be my grandfather. So one day he got a gift. It was a cup, cup, tin cup. But I wanted a cup too. It wasn't my birthday, but I wanted to be him. So they made me a cup with my initials with his birth date on it. So I could be like him. In my office today, I have those two cups. Because that was my way of emulating him. And the same way Jesus wants us. He wants, it to be so, he wants us to be so enamored with him that our chief goal in life is we want to be like him. We want to be like Jesus. Like we sing it, but do we really mean it? Something deep for us to consider. Let me give you these things. Because those disciples and us today should learn some things from hanging with Jesus. There's some things we should learn. Let me give them to you. Number A, to be guided by the Spirit should be the first thing we should learn as we hang with Jesus. If you ever notice the ministry of Jesus... He was always empowered, endowed, guided, led by the Spirit. Jesus had a Spirit-directed life. And the disciples, once again, had that same way. Why? Because that's one of the main things they got from his life. You realize that Jesus never did anything apart from his Father. Never did anything apart from his Father. 
The Spirit always led him. He was never one who operated in isolation, but he was Spirit-led. As disciples then and the disciples now, we got to learn from hanging with Jesus how to be guided by the Spirit. But B, we should also adopt the attitude of a servant in defining one's relationship to others. We should try to operate in the attitude of a servant. If I was to give you the most descriptive, definitive identification of a disciple that Jesus gives in Scripture, it would be a servant. Matter of fact, part of his, most of his admonishing of his disciples was he thought that their minds was not in being a servant. They arguing at the Last Supper. They are arguing over who's the greatest. I mean, literally arguing. And Jesus says, all right. Y'all don't get it. Let me show you. What does he do? He picks, takes off his coat, outer robe, wraps a towel around his waist, gets on his knees, and washes their feet. I can't, keep, I can't emphasize enough to you how nobody wanted to wash feet. The culture, the, um, the um, heat of that day made it just unbearable. The shoes were awful. They ain't have what we have now. I mean, let me tell you how awful. No one, no kid in those schools would stood up on career day and say, I want to be a foot washer. That was not a desirable thing. That was the lowest of low. There is no, I don't even have a job I can compare it to contemporarily. That's how low it was. And the Son of God gets on his knees and washes his disciples' feet. Matter of fact, one of the disciples had a problem with it, Peter. He said, man, you is not, because in his mind, he could not comprehend, you the son of God, and you doing this. Ain't no way. And Jesus said, man, if I can't do this to you, I can't be with you. I can't even be connected to you. Peter changed his tune. Next thing he said, man, wash all of me, Jesus. Wash my head, my shoulders, wash everything. But I want you to understand, he gives them the literal understanding that if you're to be a follower of me, you got to be a servant. C, view others with compassion. View others with compassion. One thing you notice about Jesus, Jesus always saw people and helped them in their time of need. He was compassionate, even to the point of breaking what many would consider religious rules. Mark 6, 34, then he went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and had compassion on them. Jesus was all about meeting needs. That's why I'm unashamedly part of this church and unashamedly leading us. To, that's why when this issue came up, we're going to help. Why? Because we're called to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Like I know a few years ago, you used to wear the bracelet, what would Jesus do? And that sounded trite and cute, and everybody had it because it was fashionable. But we don't wear it because it's fashionable. We wear it because that's a way of life for us. That as a disciple of Jesus, we should have compassion. That's why I struggle. I struggle with the state of affairs of people who claim to be Christian. Because there's no way you can say you serve Jesus and make some of the decisions we make against people who may not look like us, live like us. That's not what Jesus would do. Jesus don't build walls. He builds bridges. The Bible says he goes to the least of these. And I feel like the essence of it has been robbed because it shows me that some rather be Christian than be followers of Jesus. 
And it's unfortunate in our day and age, there's a straight line in demarcation. Which sometimes I almost feel ashamed to say. I tell people now, I don't even say I'm Christian. I just say I'm a follower of Jesus. I mean, offend some people. I'm just serious now because everybody co-opting it. And that bothers me. I don't know what Jesus they serve. Because the Jesus I serve don't operate with sexism and classism, racism. That, that's not the Jesus I serve. He wouldn't lock people up, babies, children. That's, I, I, don't, I, don't know, I, don't know what, I don't know what that Jesus, but I know my Jesus wouldn't do that. And it ain't based upon what color you think he is. That to me is null and void. It's the heart and substance of Jesus that I follow. And I feel like we have got away from that part of Jesus who at the end of the day, no one in scripture left Jesus the same. And if I'm like him and I follow him, that should be the same way people should leave us. That is the mission, the mandate of the church, not just of us as believers, but his church is the same way. I can talk about that all right. Let me give you some more. Number, number D, the power of faith. What the disciples learned is this whole concept of faith. If you ever do a character analysis, I, I, I encourage you to do a character analysis on the disciples of the gospel and the disciples in the Acts of the Apostles. Oh, man, it's a major difference. They rocking with Jesus, but, man, they ain't got it all together. They see him, but, you know, they, they try to help a kid, Mark 9, that had this issue, and they couldn't do nothing. Matter of fact, Jesus had to come clean up their mess. And afterwards, they say, man, how you do that? Some things come through prayer and fasting, Right? I mean, they never really could do anything. I mean, matter of fact, comes this most critical moment, they scattered. They weren't even around. The disciples of the Gospels were bumbling, inferior, just happy to be there, but never getting it right. But turn the page to Acts. Some shifts. When they see the resurrected Jesus and he rolls out, man, they start healing people. They start taking abuse and shame with pride. They start doing stuff that you never would have assumed the disciples we read in the Gospels would have ever done. But something happened. It clicked. Something shifted. And it wasn't the power of the God because he had the power all along. It was their faith. That for some reason what they couldn't get right in the Gospels, woo, they became superhuman in the acts. They walking by people, people getting healed in their shadow. Y'all ain't feeling me, so y'all don't read your Bible. Lame man outside the beautiful gate, he couldn't even walk. And they came by and say, look, silver and gold, we ain't got nothing but what we do have. We'll give to you. Reach down, lifting them up. Dude who was lame, got up shouting, running in the church. You got to understand the significance of that. So what did they get? They got something. They got something so-called faith. That's why the Bible is very clear. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because he's a reward of them who diligently seek after him. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You got to have faith. Out of anything they got, they learned how to have faith. E, how to forgive. One of the unique things that is so intriguing 
is the ability to forgive was one of the most wonderful trademarks of Jesus in Scripture. As a matter of fact, Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, says this is not our capacity to think, but our capacity to repent and forgive makes us different. Let me tell you how radical forgiving was in antiquity. They believed that only God could forgive. That's why when Jesus starts saying stuff like, your sins have been forgiven, they struggle with that because they're like, hold on, only the divine can forgive. But Jesus was doing stuff, man, like he was, he was taking it to a whole nother level. Go on your way. Your sins have been forgiven. Because he was transitioning people from being healed to being whole. You do realize there's a difference between just being healed and being whole. See, some people just want to be healed. But see, you can be healed and broken. You can be healed and depressed. But when you whole, that transcends physicality. That's mental. That's spiritual. That's emotion. He comes so that you may have life and have it more. But he comes to totally transform your life. They learn how to forgive. Elf, they learn how to love others unconditionally. What made Jesus such a unique individual was the way he loved. Love is a virtue in general that the disciples have been taught in practice. You have the variety of type of loves in the scripture from eros, the erotic. That's where we get that erotic, erotica. Phileo, which is brotherly, sisterly love. Stergo, which is parent-child love. But then you have agape, which is God's unconditional love. Agape speaks of a love which is awakened by a sense of value in an object that causes one to prize it. How Jesus loved, he loved unconditionally. Here's G. They learned, watch this, this is the last one. To pray more effectively. I'm amazed at this. Because for these disciples, out of everything they could have asked Jesus in Scripture, there was only one thing they asked Jesus to teach them. How to pray. Now, if that was us, we would have been like, man, he don't walk on water. I would have put him aside like, dude, how you walk on water? I probably would ask them too, like, yo, man, how you turn two fish to, mean, if I could do that, man, listen, right? How you, how, how did you pull that money out of that fish's mouth? Like, I would, there's a whole lot more to me personally, I would ask. But if I'm those disciples, I would tell you, I would also tell you that asking to pray if I was in their shoes would have been initially one of the last things I would ask Jesus. Because if we were to put any demographic that upholds the standard and power and prominence of prayers, it would be the Jewish people. They believe in prayer. I've been to the Holy Land a couple of times. There's no, there's no greater experience than being at the Wailing Wall to see thousands of people praying. They believe in prayer. They pray in the morning. They pray in the afternoon. They pray at night. Matter of fact, a lot of the psalms we read in this Hebrew Psalter are literal prayers. They are taught as children how to pray. That is a non-negotiable, you will pray. So what intrigues me is with these 12 people who raise Jewish 
understood the prominence, prestige, and power of prayer, who already had a ritual routine of praying at least three times a day, that knew this stuff from childhood. Why, after all that prompting of prayer, now look at Jesus out of anything they could have asked for and say, man, teach us to pray. I mean, that's like you saying to someone, teach me to walk, and you've been walking since you were three. But it was something about the prayer life of Jesus that even though they had mastered prayer, there was something different about the way Jesus prayed. That it was so unique and so powerful that it really made them think, man, I, I thought I'd been praying. I ain't been praying. Because when you pray Jesus, something happens. When you pray Jesus, stuff changes. We realize that your prayer life is key to your power. And they said, listen, we, we thought we knew how to pray. But man, give us what you do. Let us pray like you pray. Oh, I wish I had time. You know how humbling that got to be to admit that something you thought you had mastered? You ain't that good? And you met someone better and you have enough humility to say, you know what, let me learn how to pray. Out of anything they'll say about the disciples and surely they are deserving of whatever ridicule they get. Can I tell you something? That one thought, the thing they asked for to me, it just, it blew me. It makes me say, you know what, man, that is powerful. Why? Because for many of us, we will just go on what we think we know, what we've mastered. But they say, listen, we're humble enough to admit, no, there's something we need to know and it's what you got Teach us how to pray. That's why whenever you read scripture, man, Jesus does that in so many different ways. Matthew 21, 22. And if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Matthew 6, 5, and 7. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you that they have the reward. But when you pray, go into your private room. Shut your door. Pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Y'all missed the revelation. I'm so glad that I can pray to him in private and he blessed me publicly. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles since they imagine they'll be hearing for many words. Y'all ain't hear me now. Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 14 is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Listen to this. This is crazy. He also told his parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other tax collector. Pharisee was standing there praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one, this tax collector, the one who don't have much and is, is considered wicked in the eyes of other people, he went to his house justified rather than the other one. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Here's your takeaway point. I'm going to release you to have some questions and dialogue with your friends. Now, in summary, Christian discipleship, watch this, demands a radical commitment to Jesus of Nazareth. It means accepting his lifestyle and following his teachings. For a few minutes, there's some, a couple discussion questions. I want you all to pair up or triple up, whichever one you want to do.
And I want you to navigate those, those questions. If you're viewing us, view our Facebook Live or live stream, uh, you can go through the questions there on the screen. Matter of fact, we want you to, at this moment, to give your answers in the comments section. We'd love to dialogue with you as well. So at this time, go ahead and couple up or triple up or quadruple up, whatever you want to do, and uh, discuss some of the questions for discussion at this time. You've got a few moments to do that, and uh, we'll come back and we'll kind of raise a few of those, and we'll, we'll close out that way. Thank you so much. Come on, let's just bless his name together, amen.
Come on, if you came to give him all the glory. Anybody know he deserves it on today? tonight um like i said i was gonna be a lot tonight i hope i didn't bore you um how do you choose friends who who, who looked at that how do you choose friends they wanted to want to respond y'all ain't got friends nobody got friends yes based on needs so you choose friends based on needs okay commonality okay you had your hand raised track record Since 1980, I was one. That's good. <laughs> and um, they live on the <clears throat> coast of the United States. Wow. And I don't have to say a lot to them, and it's always very clear when I leave the conversation with them. It's confidentiality. Okay. It's trust. It's love. It's kindness. It's being fair. So you just know them. I mean, confidential, trust, love. And so that was a lot. Okay. We can, we can cover a range of anything and not have to talk every day. Yeah. Friendship does not need constant attention. That's deep. True friendship doesn't need constant attention. That, that ain't part of the lesson, but that's powerful. <laughs> I could teach a whole class on friendship. All right. All right. So the second one, who has more influence in your life? Are y'all going to be honest? Your friends or do Jesus? Who's going to honest that? How many say Jesus got more influence on your life? Y'all so spiritual. Yeah, the Lord. Spiritual maturity. Who going to be honest and say, my friends, honestly, Pastor, thank you. Amen, amen. Amen, amen, amen. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's, it's, there's always that tension. There's always that tension. I think, and it's okay, you know, in and many of y'all that raise your hand that Jesus got more influence is lying. I ain't going to tell Jesus on you. That's on you. Um, because there's an evaluation of that. If, if, I think we have to be honest. There are moments and there are seasons and there are circumstances and situations. 
you say you follow Jesus. But there's a difference in saying it and walking it out. And, and let's be real. I mean, all of us, you know, from time to time, allow the pressures of life and, uh, you know, and we'll, we'll claim, I'm not going to deep into this because it's already past the time, but we'll claim spirituality in some things when you know it wasn't spirit, it was your flesh. We're human, you're right. That's, but that's, and, I, and I think that struggle is cool, right? I mean, we're all trying to be there, like, you know, and so it is a journey. Number three, what can we learn from Jesus' relationship with the disciples that can help us in our friendships? Not to judge. Not to judge. Uh, I can push back on that a little bit. Yes. Accept your friends for who they are. That's pretty powerful. Learn to forgive. That's right. Um, but I would say this, and I will push that a little further. I agree. You do accept your friends who they are. I think that is people are who they are. But I do think there is a loving way to push them to better. Whatever better is, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah and so I, I think that's a, that's a unique thing because most of us are pushy. And most of us are manipulators. We're not going to admit it, but we are. And so we want people to be on our level where we want them to be. Y'all saying amen? That's the choir over there saying? Yeah, it's true. And so we, we throw out conditions. That really true friendship transcends your conditions. Yeah. All right, here's the last one. What can we do this week to utilize our friendships to the glory of God? Yes. Treat everybody with grace. Okay. Bring them to church. That's cool. Who else? Y'all so spiritual. Y'all so spiritual. I love it. Bring them to church. Do it. Yes. Encourage them. I like that. I really like that. I like that. That encouragement thing is huge. I think it's huge. And, I, and I, think, I think it's the root of everything. I think if I'm encouraging, they'll want to come with me to church. <laughs> you know what I mean? Some of us want people to come to church, and they like, I don't like to hang with you anyway like that, so why would I? <laughs> so I do think there's something to, I like that. That encouragement is, because is, um, one of the things I think you do see, and, and I heard this, and, and I heard this on, on a podcast I was listening to, as I was working on finishing up Bible study for the series. And he said this line, and y'all write this down because this thing blessed me in such a way. Because there's a way we can be demanding without demeaning. That one little line floored me. Because I think part of the shift in trying in our, in our aim to be positive, it's actually a book I'm going to take our staff through, positive uh, teams. The author was, I was listening to him kind of have an interview, and that one line, bless me, mama, it messed me up because I don't think many of us know the difference. There's a difference between being demanding and being demeaning. That thing messed me up because it's a fine line in demanding and demeaning. So I thought that was kind of deep. 
All right, I want y'all to continue the conversation. Thank you for those who conversated and commented online. Uh, we appreciate your input, and we're going to check that out. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. And so help us to once again do what you require of us, and that's simply want us to be in companionship. Pray, our prayer, God, is that you would be our BFF. Jesus, we want to roll with you and remain with you, and it's our chief aim and our desire to just be in relationship. And we hope and pray that through our relationship with you, we are more like you. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, as our officers come, we get ready to give tonight. Let me give you a couple other things. Once again, uh, we are doing a gift card drive for those families who are affected by the furloughs. I hope that you will do it. $25 and above, gas cards, grocery cards, and anything else. All right. I'm trying to stay away from, from monetary gifts, but if you just got to give, I would prefer, and you help me out, Woods, uh, put on the line item benevolence. Benevolence. And we'll put that in a benevolence form. Um, we have some families in our church affected, and we want to help. And also, like I said, we're going to be a blessing to other federal workers in our area, okay? So if you can, once again, if you have your gift cards, you don't make it to the church by 1 o'clock tomorrow, this is what you do. Just bring it to church on Sunday. Put it in the offering basket when it's offering time, and they will separate them, and we'll make the contributions uh, when it goes out. It's on the news. They asked me, how long are you doing this? I don't know. Um, it don't look like they're gonna sh the shutdown going to stop anytime soon. Um, I had thought it was just two paychecks, but what I heard that some had already been furloughed since December 21st. And that's a long time, and um, I can't imagine, and many have said to us confidentially, they've maxed out credit cards. It's, and so, man, our heart goes for them, and my, um, we want to do whatever we can. So, uh, once again, bring them this week. Keep bringing them. We want to be a blessing if we can do that. Yeah. Down DCCM, yes, right. And uh, many, many people do not know about this. Okay. And people who are in need, if they come to us. Okay. Can you talk to Woods afterwards? We want to connect y'all. Get to Woods, Woods afterwards. Okay, good. And, and, and uh, Reverend Richardson, too. And so that'll work. Thank you. I appreciate that. Good plug. Put that in for DCCM. Um, so help us to do that. Can y'all do that? And I don't know when it's going to end. I don't know when we want to stop. Uh, but we just want to be a blessing. I cannot imagine. Like you heard on Sunday, 78% of people live check to check. And that's a lot. So we want to be a blessing if you can. Whatever you can give uh, towards that. Once again, I'm, we, it's simply gift cards now. But if you've got to get monetary, just get an envelope. Put benevolence on it. Benevolence on it. And that will help us in that fund, all right? So we want you to do that. And also, if you're giving, give Lify or Secure Give, you can do that as well. And so we'll, we'll kind of earmark that as well, all right? Uh, Stan, a couple of things. This is Education Weekend. So tomorrow from 6.30 to 8.30 at Cafe 209, uh, business leaders, entrepreneurs, people just want to be interested in being a mingle. So come downtown. We've already got it catered. It's a great opportunity to come. We want some students to come as well. I want to connect people. Uh, there's some amazing people. Really, we need your information, too, so I hope that you're registering online and do those things. And maybe tomorrow, just come. Um, bring your business cards. It's a professional mixer. We want to really get people connected in that way. Saturday from 10 to 1, right here at our main location, uh, we're doing college uh, prep seminars. So those of you interested in school and uh, maybe you're in school and want to come help, we've got some great panelists going to help us on that. And then Sunday, 6 o'clock, is going to be our Morehouse College Glee Club is going to be rocking with us as they do every year. What are deacons at? Won't you raise your hand? we got an ambitious goal of over 60,000 this year. We did over 56 last year. Come on, let's give God praise for that. 
You know what? That's a little lukewarm. Give God praise for that. That's y'all giving that has helped us uh, to be a singular entity and give close to $50,000 of scholarship. Uh, that's pretty much unheard of, I'll be honest with you. And so we want to do and raise the bar. Uh, and that's our aim, man. Any child, we want to give an opportunity that's in undergrad uh, that's to, to have an opportunity to have that. Now, that may be just a book, but we're trying our best, amen, because it's expensive. We want to be a blessing. And so your, 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 your graciousness in giving, I already thank you in advance. For whatever you give, uh, it's, it's a blessing. It all goes towards, I say it's Hamilton Scholarship, so we appreciate that, all right? There's a couple other things we also have going forward. Exo Marriage Seminar, you hear more about this, the 8th and the 9th of February. Uh, it's $20 single, $35 for married. It's a Simon class. It's going to be great. And then on the 15th, February 15th, where the 55 and older folk at? 55 and older, raise your hand. Come on, y'all got to be. We, we, come on, 55 and older. We got a wonderful opportunity. Our February is Heritage Month, and we want to do something special for that demographic. It's the Heritage Gala, $25 a ticket. It's just coming in. Listen, y'all going to party, right? I want you to wear your formal stuff. This ain't semi. I mean formal. I want to see tuxes with tails, and I want to see gowns and all that good stuff. And uh, come on out, have a good time, man. We got a live band that's going to be there. It's going to be great. So you can start picking up your tickets to get that, all right? So be a part of that. I think it's going to be great. Let's pray for our gifts tonight. Father, we bless you. We thank you. And now, God, as we give, we appreciate the opportunity to give unto you. And Lord, we pray for those families throughout our country who are affected through the governor's shutdown. We pray for our government, that you will bring resolution in conflict, and that you will let uh, cooler heads prevail. Uh, realizing that lives are in the balance. So we pray for our church, and we thank you for this upcoming weekend of Education Weekend. We thank you for the precious privilege uh, to once again help uh, others advance themselves. And as it was once said, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. And so we hope that we can help those who want to get that. So I thank you for the gifts that your people will give and to help uh, the endeavors that you call us to be as the hands and feet of Jesus. So, Lord, we love you. We bless you. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.